listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Today's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. So a few years back, my, uh, my wife's sister was going through a really uh, difficult divorce uh, with a husband who, who was fighting her on everything and manipulating the, the kids against her and all of that stuff. And it, um, it, the whole situation made us mad, uh, especially my wife. Uh, if you know Jenna, if you know my wife, like she is all in, 100%. She is fiercely loyal, and if you mess with her people, you mess with her. And when you mess with her, you, you get the horns as well. <laughs> Which is why I asked for permission before sharing this story. <laughs> so she, she uh, decided... Um, somewhere in the, I don't remember how finalized everything was or where it was, but she decided she wanted to make our, our now ex-brother-in-law um, as mad as she was. Uh, so, he's a, a staunch libertarian. Um, so she signed him up for the mailing list for every local, state, and federal Democratic candidate he was eligible to vote for. Yeah. Um, she called the power company. Uh, for his area and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing some digging over in my sister's yard. Um, could you guys come over and kind of mark where we're allowed to dig or not dig? And they said, would it, would it help if we, uh, if we just came over and spray painted no everywhere there's no problem in the lawn? And she's like, that's perfect. <laughs> Worst of all, she uh, posted a Craigslist ad, free puppies with pictures and put his cell phone number. Now, I'm not blameless in this either because it was awesome. At least, it, it was awesome for a time. Now, that's not where the story ends. I'm going to leave us hanging here for a, a, a little bit because there were a few people, and I, on my better days, I was one of them. There were a few people that were saying to my wife, like, hey, I think you might have gone a little bit too far like bordering on illegal, uh, at least not loving. Can you relate? Some of you have judgy faces, but that's only because you managed to resist the temptation to do what she did. Boy, as I was preparing for this week's sermon, reading through this passage over and over again, the implications of Jesus' command to love even our enemies just started weighing on me more and more. I mean, if I'm really supposed to love the people who don't love me back, 
That means there's a lot of uh, junk in my heart that needs to come out. Uh, There's a lot of work that I need to do, stuff that needs to change. Because, you know, it's, it's so much easier to look loving than to be loving, isn't it? Looking loving just requires self-control. Just don't make the Craigslist post, and you look loving. But being loving is a lot harder because it requires self-denial and self-sacrifice. Looking loving just requires behavior change. Being loving requires a heart change, which is always a hard change. If you've been with us the last couple of months, we've been working our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' great discipleship manual, his manifesto for what life looks like in his kingdom. For two months now, we've been in this first chunk of his teaching after the Beatitudes, all those statements where he said, blessed are those who. Now he's gone into this area where he's taking six different Old Testament laws, and he's, he's not reinterpreting them. He's reinvesting them. He's, he's reiterating them. He's kind of uh, intensifying these old laws, showing how they were all intended to drive into our hearts. He's saying, well, let, let's, let's bring that out more clearly, what this law was supposed to do. Each time he focuses in on one of these old laws, he's telling us, he's telling his followers that there's a, a different degree of righteousness that he wants from his people. Righteousness that is more than just skin deep. A righteousness that is about more than just external behavior or, you know, more than just not doing what you shouldn't do. It's a righteousness. The righteousness he wants is a righteousness that goes all the way to the heart. That's, that's a whole person righteousness. Right? It's not enough to just look good. He also wants us to be good. And in this passage, which we just heard read, this last of his six explanations of the Old Testament law, he says, it's not enough to just look loving. I want you to actually be loving. Now, that takes us to Matthew 5. 43. So turn there with me if you haven't already. It's, uh, if you need a Bible and grab the one underneath the seat in front of you, it's on page uh, 964. And we're going to jump in here with Matthew 5, 43 and the verses that follow. This is the hardest and probably greatest of Jesus' commands. All right, so 543. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If you read through the entirety of the Old Testament looking for the phrase, you shall hate your enemy, you're not going to find it. It's not there in those exact words, but you shall love your neighbor is. It shows up right in the middle of Leviticus chapter 19. That's a chapter right in the middle of a bigger section of Leviticus that's all about living a holy life in God's presence. And of course, Leviticus is going to in the middle of the five books that uh, Moses wrote that deliver sort of the story of Israel and God's law to his people. Now, what Jesus quotes in the first half of this when he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, just one small part of a longer or larger verse. The whole verse says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people doesn't mean daughters are exempt. It's just, you know, it's inclusive of everyone. We're not bear a grudge, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. 
Now, this verse in the middle of chapter 19 comes at the end of a whole list of like thou shalt not, a whole list of statutes or commands, or you could think of them as, as house rules for how God's people are supposed to live together. Here's a bunch of things that you shouldn't do that he then contrasts with, on the other hand, what you should do is love your neighbor as yourself. So here's what you shouldn't do, uh, or I guess to put them positively, uh, make sure you provide for the poor. Don't steal from one another. Don't lie to one another. Don't make promises you don't intend to keep. Don't oppress your neighbors. Don't make life more difficult for those with physical handicaps. Don't show favoritism on the poor or the rich. Don't slander, don't gossip, don't try to get rid of or eliminate people you don't like. Don't hate others, don't take vengeance, don't bear a grudge. Instead, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you can see what's happening in this original law back there in Leviticus 19, right? Our, our natural scope of love is very small. It's everybody you can wrap up in one self-hug, right? You're with me. Our natural scope of love is about this big, and it expands a little bit with family, with a spouse, with kids, maybe even a little bit more with kin. And what God is doing in Leviticus 19 through Moses is saying, okay, this, the scope of your love needs to expand. You need to open it, broaden it out, When you only love yourself, then everyone outside of that circle becomes things, tools that you can use to love yourself. He says, no, let's expand that circle, make it larger, and include even neighbors, people who are maybe like you, live near you, but aren't you. You know, they're not your kin. They're not your family. Include them as well in this circle of love. Of course, before we go too much further, I should probably slow down a bit to make sure that we all know what we mean when we use the word love. Uh, Because love is a tricky word in the English language. I love naps. I love pizza. Uh, I love a movie. I love a band. I love coffee. I love my kid. I love my spouse. I love God. Surely those aren't the same kind of love, right? If you love pizza the same way you love your parents, then your love is messed up. If you love coffee the same way you love your kids, that's not good. So when we use the word love to describe a relationship with a thing, you know, I love naps, I love pizza, I love coffee, whatever, uh, we're, we're talking about or we're using love to mean the positive emotion, the positive mental state that comes along with thinking about that thing or experiencing that thing or tasting that thing. Naps make me feel good, pizza tastes good, thinking of a pet gives me warm fuzzies because my pet is warm and fuzzy, right? That's how it works. But when you use the word love to talk of people, you know, a a parent, a spouse, kids, a friend, or God, positive emotions may be part of it, but they can't be the whole of it. If positive emotion is simply what you mean when you think about or when you use the word love to describe how you act towards your spouse or towards God, then it's, it's not a strong enough word because you can love someone without feeling positive emotions towards them at that moment. Have you ever heard someone say, it's a good thing I love you because I don't like you very much right now? Or just think of the self-sacrificial kinds of love, like the exhausted parent with a newborn at the 3 a.m. feeding. Or the husband who is nursing his wife in her increasing dementia. 
Positive emotion is not the right word for it. We mean a deeper and more profound kind of love. That kind of love, when we're using the word love to describe a relationship with another person or with God, is not about a feeling. It's about a choice. It's not about a warm fuzzy. It's about a decision you make and continue making, a choice to specifically to will the other's good. Love is consciously choosing to want what is good, what is best for the object of your love. Love is willing the other's good, which means love is primarily about deciding, about choosing to want what is good for another person. When you say to that person, I love you, you're not saying, I experience strong positive emotions in your presence. And maybe you do, and that's good. But if you're using the word in its whole sense, you're also saying, I have decided to want what is best for you, to want what is truly good for you as a human being in relationship with God and with me. I'm choosing to desire what is best for you. That's what love is, deciding to want what is best for another person. So you can see how in Leviticus 19, the command, the whole list of commands there all relate to loving your neighbor. Right? When, it, when it says, uh, don't lie, don't steal, don't gossip, don't slander, don't hate, don't show favoritism, when you do those things, you aren't desiring the good of your neighbor. You're desiring your own good at the expense of your neighbor. Right? You're using them in order to love yourself. And the circle gets small again. God's saying in Leviticus 19, expand the scope of your love to include even neighbors. It's natural for us to love ourselves and to will our own good. God says, make the circle bigger. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's, that's a command, but it's not a command to feel a certain way. Right? It's not a command to have warm fuzzies about your neighbor the same way you have warm fuzzies about yourself. It's not a command to feel. It's a command to act in a certain way, to choose the good of those who are around you. Now, that's Leviticus 19. Matthew 5, Jesus takes that command and says, do you see the direction it's already going in? It's already going from self and getting bigger. In the kingdom to come, it will be even bigger. Let's expand and broaden the scope even more beyond self, beyond family, beyond kin, beyond neighbor and tribe, even to enemies. So back to verse... 43. Matthew 5, 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mentioned a few minutes ago that hate your enemy is never explicitly commanded in the Old Testament anywhere. Uh, But believing that it's right and that it's good and maybe even that God wants you to hate your enemy... um, is almost inevitable for fallen human beings like us, right? It's so easy to go from uh, love yourself to love your neighbor, and from love your neighbor to love only your neighbor, to love only your neighbor becomes love, love only your neighbor and do the opposite to whoever's not your neighbor, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See the natural progression? 
And so the, the sort of common understanding was, well, this is actually what God commands. He commands us to love our neighbors, hate our enemies. Because for people who have long been oppressed and they've been violently relocated, they've been subjugated, taxed, they're living under the heavy cultural pressure and financial pressure and social and legislative pressure of the Roman Empire, you can see how hating your enemy is almost considered divinely patriotic. You love God and love his people by hating the ones who are oppressing you. And it's even easier if the people who are oppressing you are a racially and culturally different group of people. Because no true Israelite would love their Roman occupiers. No true Israelite would will the good of the people oppressing them. Not just in general, but also not specifically. I mean, how difficult would it be for you as a, as a true Israelite to will the good of the soldier who forced you to carry his pack, who ridicules your religion, your dress, your way of life, who, who leers at your wife and kicks your kids to get them out of, out of his way? I'm supposed to want the good for that guy? Because that's the world into which Jesus shows up and says to those who have decided to follow him, he says, look, I know you know the commandments. I know what you've heard. You know love your neighbor. And I know you, it's easy to think that all God commands you to do is love your neighbor. That's it. That's the border. And everything outside of it, you're free to feel and do whatever you want. But as he's done with all six of these explanations of Old Testament law, he says, I've got something bigger and greater and more righteous in mind. Don't hate your enemy. You know, always fantasizing about their downfall, plotting their ruin, holding on to that zinger of a retort you wish you could have come back in the conversation instead of thought of 20 minutes later, and then savoring how good it would have felt if you'd actually said that. I say, don't hate your enemies, love them. And he, he says, here's what that looks like. If they persecute you, pray for them. If they hurt you, do good to them. If they curse you, bless them. He says, that's the kind of righteousness I'm commanding you, right? So take that circle of love. You see how it's already expanding, and you say, expand it more. Love yourself, that comes naturally. Love your family, some of us struggle, but mostly it comes naturally. Love your neighbors, people who are like you, Difficult, but doable. Love your enemies. Actively decide to want the good of those who have actively decided to want the bad for you. Love them. I don't think Jesus means, I don't think he's assuming we should understand this as um, do those spiritual gymnastics to where they're punishment is their good, right? Like, you've seen all the construction out on 465 now. Going home takes twice as long because lanes are blocked and everything's moving, and there are a whole bunch of sinful people who give in to the temptation that I also have to, like, use the shoulder to go around. And you see them flying by, and you're like, come on, man, we're all stuck here. What are you doing? And it's easy to convince yourself, you know, that guy's for his own good, he should be caught and punished. 
Father, in your mercy, (laughs) would you just ordain an officer to be right there, ready to show him that that this isn't for his good, right? Better prayer, of course, would be, you know, one of those... uh, Lord, I don't know what's going on in their life right now, but you know what they need. You know what's good for them. Do whatever you do to draw them closer to you. Any any of you pray that in traffic when you're cut off? No, because that's something only pious grandmothers do. And the rest of us, like, roll our eyes. Like, really? Nobody does that. And it sounds cheesy, and it, it is cheesy, but that's because I picked an easy example the, the guy cutting you off in traffic or the person who squeezes in front of you at the checkout line at Target, like, that's easy. But no one wants to be pointed to this passage when you're complaining about the boss who passed you over for a promotion for the third time. Or when the doctor whose rough bedside manner didn't soften the blow of your tragedy, it actually sharpened it. Or the babysitter, whose momentary last lapse in vigilance ended with your kid landing on their head. No one wants you to quote this verse. It's the colleague who criticized your work, hoping to get promoted ahead of you. Or the, the guy who showed interest in you and then just disappeared, ghosted you. That ex-husband who fights you on every single thing having to do with the kids. Or the son-in-law who's always at the office, never spending time with his wife and his kids, and your daughter is dying inside and he doesn't even know. That kid who molested your kid at a sleepover. That one friend you have who is so insecure that every conversation turns into a competition, even if you didn't sign up for it. A friend who threw you under the bus so they could save face. Or, or those people who fundamentally disagree with you about issues that are legitimately harmful, that they think are fine. Or that parent who keeps trying to control your life, even though you're in your 40s. Like, come on, Mom. I'm an adult. The person that's screaming at you from the other side of the picket line. Or that employee who stole from you and has no remorse. You're, that sibling you have who cannot get their life together means that you are always on call to bail them out of whatever they got themselves into this time. It's a lot easier to apply this passage to 465 in the Target checkout line. But Jesus doesn't say, love your annoyances. Or he says, love your enemies. Actively choose, decide to want what is good, even for those who have actively chosen to want what is bad for you. Love your enemies. But why? I mean, if you're like me, you're going, okay, Jesus, but why? Why in the world would I want to do that? He goes on in the passage. Almost like he knew we were going to ask the question. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that 
you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, pause for a second. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven isn't saying, like, the extent to which you can love and pray for the people who don't love you, that that's what gets you your ticket into heaven or into the kingdom. This is a, a Jewish idiom, a figure of speech. Sons of so-and-so is a way of saying become like that person. You know, your characteristics match theirs. It's like I was having coffee with a, uh, with a young man this week, and even as we're sitting there talking, I just marveled at how, how many of his mannerisms and figures of speech and speech patterns and all of them. I'm like, that's your dad. Like, you are like, you're the son of, so you're like him. It, some translations render this word for word, be sons of your father. Uh, others give it a little more thought for thought, that you may be like your father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying, I want you to do these things in order to be like your heavenly father. Why? Well, this is what sons and daughters of God do. This kind of love is the love, it's the kind of love that sons and daughters, people who share the same characteristics with God, this is the kind of love that they show because that's what God does. Look at verse 45. So that you may be like your Father who is in heaven, because He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Can you imagine what it would look like if God waited to see how you perform today before He decides if the sun will rise on your house tomorrow? Neighborhoods would be like little pockets of light and dark. People's houses are like, oh, the Johnsons is dark again. No, of course he doesn't do that. Nor does he wait to see how good you are today before he decides if tomorrow he's going to rain on your parade or on your garden. Because God gives these good things to everyone. In, in God's good governance of the world, he, he gives these blessings to everyone equally, regardless of their moral performance. So, Look, this is what God's like. Now, if you, he goes on to say in verse 46, 47, if your righteousness doesn't attain to that level, then what good is it? Verse 46, if you love those who already love you, well, then what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers, those who are going to greet you, well, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do that. He's saying, look, if... If you, so look at the tax collectors, look at the Gentiles. They love those who love them. They greet those who greet them. You do the same thing. If your righteousness is only at that level, this, it's not that higher, greater righteousness I'm calling you to. Jesus says, don't, you know, don't fool yourself. Well, I'm, I'm, in, I'm not in the, the hated tax collector group, so my righteousness is better. It's like, no, you're doing the same thing. Just with your in-group instead of their in-group. Your love needs to extend beyond the, the in-group to even further. And in fact, it, it gets pretty extreme. Verse 48 says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what exactly he means by that, we're going to get into next week. We're going to take all of next week to look at just that one verse. But in short, Jesus isn't telling us you need to be flawless because your heavenly Father is flawless, but you need to be blameless, wholly oriented towards holiness. God is wholly oriented towards holiness. You need to be as well. Now, we're fallen. We're going to fail from that, but the point isn't to be flawless. It's to be blameless, to continue moving back towards holiness even when we fall away from it, but we'll get into that more next week. 
Jesus is saying here, in your love, your love needs to line up with who God is, the God who gives good gifts to everyone, regardless of what they've done for Him, or regardless of their moral performance. He's saying your love needs to line up with the kind of love that God wants when He desires what is good for us. And Jesus is saying your love needs to line up with the kind of love that God will show when He returns and does what is good for each of us. So, uh, how do we work out that righteousness in our lives? Uh, How do we choose to want what is good even from those who do not want what is good for us? Because if what Jesus is saying here is really true, then he's saying that real, true, whole, you know, human life in the kingdom of God only comes when we love others, when we love even our enemies, when we decide to want what is good for even those who have decided to want what is bad for us. When my wife was tormenting our former brother-in-law, um, like I said, it felt good. I mean, didn't necessarily approve of what she was doing, but the effects I enjoyed. Then he started to take it out on Jenna's sister. And that's what we, when we realized all we were doing was just ramping up hate. We weren't, we weren't doing anything loving towards him. We weren't choosing his good or my wife's sister's good or even our own good. And when we realized that, um, my wife did one of the hardest and most loving things I've ever seen her do. She called him and said, I did these things, and I'm sorry. It wasn't loving. Will you forgive me? And we can become the type of people who love even those who don't love us. And we can either become those type of people before we need to be that person, or in our case, after. After we've already messed it up and screwed it up. It's better to become this type of person first before you need to. So a couple of steps here as we think about, okay, how do you work this, this kind of righteousness, this kind of love out into your own life? The, the first step is you have to know why you're loving, even loving your enemies. It, because, look, if you're thinking of the, you know, you're hearing this and you're thinking of a person or two or ten who come to mind and you're like, God, really? Like, seriously, you want me to desire the good of that person? Don't you know what they've done to me? Well, then God says, well, you know, I desire your good. and Don't you know what you've done to me? 
if you find yourself in that, uh, that place where I, I've been there, we've all been there, you, you don't even have an inkling of a desire to love the person who doesn't love you back, then step one is simply to sit at the foot of the cross and look at Jesus actively choosing your good and not his own. Because nowhere else is this attitude, this way of loving, more explicit than in Jesus himself. He was hanging on the cross, looking at the men who were crucifying him at that moment, actually gambling over his clothing, and looks up and prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If Jesus can pray for the good of the men who nailed him to the cross, then what about us? What kind of love are we called to? So first is sit there in that space at the foot of the cross and say, okay, God, you are calling me to love someone who's hurt me. But I guess you've been there before. If you can do it, I can do it too. That's first step, motivation. Second step is finding a model, uh, someone who's done it. I mean, obviously, uh, the first model is Jesus himself. He identified himself with us. He moved towards us. He offered us life through his own sacrifice of love. But other models abound as well. There are are people around you who have sacrificially loved, even those who have not loved them first. Of course, many of you guys are too humble to actually tell these stories, but we need you to. Speaking as a younger Christian... We have to hear the stories of how you have overcome the the tendency towards self-love and actually loved those who don't love you first because I can't imagine what something looks like in my life until I've seen it in someone else's life. I have to know what this looks like in your life in order to imagine how I might do it. After first hour, someone came up to me and told me a story of something that had happened to them that they ended up in court and yet was it, were able to, um, to go to the person that was suing them and say, I hope you get what you need. It's sincerely. And they didn't tell me the story in a check out what I did sort of a way, but it's like God just gave me the heart to love that person in that sort of way. It's like I have to hear those stories in order to know it's possible. I hope I don't find myself in that situation. But if I do... At least I know someone like me has been there before. So you guys have stories. You have to tell them to your kids. You have to tell them to your community groups or in the classes that you're in because everyone younger than you or everyone who hasn't experienced what you've experienced needs to see what it looks like in someone else's life so we can imagine what it looks like in our own. So please, for our sake, just humble brag a little bit, okay? And if God has overcome your sinful desire for self-love and helped you actually choose the good of someone who's actively choosing not good for you, share it, because we need to hear it. We absolutely need to hear it. Step one was find that motivation. Step two is find a model, see it in someone else's life. But step three is practice. Practice. The goal of any practice, whether it's you know, an instrument or a sport or a language or whatever, the goal of any practice is to become proficient to the point where you don't have to think, you just, you just act. 
Right? You just do the action without thinking. So we have to practice love, uh, practice willing the good of others, even our enemies. Think of that one person who came to mind earlier and practice loving them, pray for them. Or maybe start with something a little bit easier. Uh, maybe your situation or those ones that I listed earlier where this kind of thing is really difficult. Um, pick a, an easier area, an annoyance maybe, instead of an, an enemy, and practice loving that person or that thing. When you find yourself in that situation and you recognize in the moment that you're getting annoyed uh, and you're able to catch yourself, then, then stop and, okay, what would love look like here? Uh, and practice it in, in those small and less threatening areas because you, we have to build up in ourselves and as a community, we have to build up that habit of being able to respond correctly in the small things in order for it to come out in the big things. Because when you're, you know, when you're in the moment, in one of these actual very difficult circumstances to, in which you're called to love someone else, when you're in that moment and you don't have time to think about what the right thing to do is, and you're just responding, you know as well as I do, we never rise to the level of our aspirations, do we? You never rise up to the level of what you want to be true of you. You always fall back to the level of wherever your habits are. So if even in small things, your habit is to complain about or want the bad to happen to even the little annoyances, that's where you're going to fall back to when you're facing a real challenge to love. So practice. We, we find the reason for this love in Jesus for us on the cross. We, you know, we get to see examples of it in others, and then we practice it over and over again. Find your motivation. Find a model. Practice it. Repeat and repeat it again, and repeat it again. And keep coming back to that point at the foot of the cross where if even Jesus can actively choose to ask his Father for the good of those who are actively working for his bad, then so can we. Not just because he's given us an example, but because when we do, he works through us to others. Let's pray. Father, the highest and hardest and greatest choices you ever call us to is this choice to, to love, uh, love others and even extend that love to our enemies. Father, we confess that we are insufficient to meet this command. We, we fail daily, constantly. We do not love you as we should. We don't love others as we ought. And, and we ask, we repent and ask that you forgive us for our failure to love. But even as you forgive us, may that forgiveness itself drive us back to your love for us, that your love in us may flow through us and transform us so that we can love others. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.